Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew and Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, I will be preaching on verses 4 through 28 today, but I'm going to begin at the beginning of, uh, or at the end of chapter 23 in verse 37. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37. This is the inspired and errant and infallible word of God. Let's give it our attention. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet." For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand And then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand." 
So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, We have several couples who are with child currently in our congregation, and we are always delighted as the Lord increases our number uh, through uh, these newborn babies. Of course, one of the trickiest things about having a baby is actually knowing when it's time to go to the hospital. On the one hand, if you are a first-time parent, uh, it can be hard to know when it's time to go. If it's your first baby, uh, you are probably just more excited to meet that little guy or girl uh, than, than anything else. You've been waiting nine months, your bags are packed, uh, at least Marianne and I, we had these, these uh, hospital bags all ready to go so that, you know, at, at that first contraction, we could be in the car and on our way to the hospital. Uh, of course, contractions can actually begin up to three weeks before <laughs> uh, you actually go into full labor. And uh, if you get there too soon, they are just going to send you home. And that is only going to add insult to injury. But on the other hand, if you wait too long, you know, maybe you've had a couple of kids, and this is old hat to you, and you think, I've got lots of time. I don't need to pack. I'll I'll just hang on a, a few more days. Well, if you're not careful, you may end up having a baby in the back of the car in a parking lot. You see, there's, there is that, uh, that difference between those first birth pains, the beginning of birth pains, as Jesus calls them, and the signal that it's time to go. And usually there is a pretty clear signal. If your water breaks, you need to, you need to be on your way to the hospital. Jesus picks up on that analogy, and he uses it to, to say something about what's going on here with respect to the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, he says there are going to be birth pains. There are going to be those initial signs leading up to the end, but the end is not yet. And when that end comes, there is going to be a very clear signal. Uh, And and the point of the signs that Jesus gives as he instructs his disciples about this coming desolation of Jerusalem and its temple is not meant to whip them up into a sort of eschatological frenzy. That's not the point at all. The point is actually to prepare them for endurance. The point is to have them persevere through these initial birth pains until the end comes. That's the the sort of endurance that we need. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to consider it under three parts. First, we're going to look at the signs that Jesus speaks of in verses 1 through 14. The signs. Uh, Secondly, we're going to look at the signal 
as he lays it out for us in verses 15 through 20, the signal. And then finally, we're going to consider the suffering that he describes in verses 21 through 28. So the signs, the signal, and the suffering. Uh, But before we just dive right in, let me remind you of the context and remind you of the questions that have occasioned these instructions of Jesus. Uh, You remember Jesus in chapter 23 has just finished pronouncing seven woes upon Israel's religious leaders. And those woes culminated in some very sobering declarations about the judgment that God was going to send upon them because of their treatment of the prophets and because of their treatment of God's Son. Indeed, Jesus says, Upon you will come all of the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And he said, Truly I tell you, all these things are going to come upon this generation. Uh, And then as he lamented what was going to come upon that generation, he also pronounced, see, your house is left to you desolate. The house he's referring to is the temple, which was often referred to as the house of God. And that uh, desolation of the house begins, that abandonment of the house begins as Jesus himself actually abandons the temple and leaves and says, you are not going to see me again. I am not going to come back to this house. And you remember the confusion that overcame the disciples. Their expectation of him as the Messiah was that he would begin his messianic reign from this house, from this great city, from this glorious temple. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, look, What wonderful buildings, what wonderful stones. And Jesus is not impressed. The temple has become a hollow shell. It is desolate. And so Jesus instead says, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the disciples contemplate this all the way to the Mount of Olives, and they finally... They get up the courage to come and ask Jesus, what are you talking about? Uh, They'd say, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They cannot conceive of such an utter destruction of the temple as anything less than the end of the age. And so they assume that all these things that must come upon this generation, when will all these things be? They assume that it is one final climactic end. But Jesus actually says, no, it's going to unfold in stages. There will first be an end to this temple. There will first be an end to this house. There will not be left one stone upon another. But there will be another end. There will be the end of the world when I return in judgment. And so he clarifies, he distinguishes between the two between all these things that will come upon this generation and between of that day and of that hour, nobody knows. The things that come upon this generation will be attended by signs, but of that day and hour, there will be no signs. It will be like lightning striking from the east to the west. It will be like a thief in the night. And so as we now 
uh, look at these verses, verses 4 through 28, we need to understand that we are looking at the signs that Jesus says are going to uh, accompany, they're, they're going to proceed, accompany, and follow the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus wants them to be ready because Jesus is sending them out on a mission. You remember the way that the Gospel of Matthew ends with the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the world. You remember the way the book of Acts begins with Jesus telling them that they are going to begin in in Jerusalem and then move to Judea and then Samaria and then to the end of the world. And Jesus wants to encourage them for their mission. Uh, One of the commentators I read, Bruner, says, Jesus wants them to be long-distance runners. He wants them to have endurance. And so he encourages them in these signs with three encouragements. He says three things to them here. He says, first, don't be deceived. He says, secondly, don't be afraid. And then finally, he says, don't give up. Look at verse 4. He says, don't be deceived. See that no one leads you astray. Many are going to come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. Many are going to come, and they are going to claim to be God's Messiah, God's deliverer. And indeed, many did. There were many imposters claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be another Messiah. We actually, we have examples of this in the Bible itself. As the book of Acts continues, we read of Simon Magus, for example, who were told, bewitched the people of Samaria, telling them that he was the great one of God. In fact, Jerome quotes Simon Magus as saying, I am the word of God. I am the comforter. I am the almighty. I am all that there is in God. We know of Dostheus, who claims to be the Christ foretold of by Moses. Josephus tells us that many imposter Christs, uh, Felix, puts to death daily. There is so much frenzy. Uh, There is so much tension growing in Jerusalem that it is ripe with imposters claiming to be a Messiah. Jesus says, Don't be deceived. Remember, I told you that this was going to happen. The second thing he tells them, he says, don't be afraid. In verse 6, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. Uh, This must take place first, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. There are going to be a lot of reasons when you look out at the world and you look out at your circumstances and you look out at the culture, there are going to be a lot of things that make you think this is the end. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Which is surprising because when Jesus spoke these words, it was a season of great peace in the Roman Empire. But within just a few short years of his death, that peace would be entirely disrupted. J. Marcellus Kick notes that four emperors would come to a violent death in the short space of 18 months. 
In Seleucia, 50,000 would be slain. In Caesarea, another 20,000 Jews would be killed in battle with the Syrians. When Caligula required his statue to be placed in the temple, the Jews refused. And so they lived in constant fear that the Roman armies would be coming. In addition to that, we have records of famines. Acts 11 uh, verse 28 tells us of a particularly severe one during the reign of Claudius. There were earthquakes all over the place. We have historical records of earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Samos, Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae, Rome, Judea, most famously in Pompeii in 63 AD. All of these things are happening in this generation. There are a lot of foreboding circumstances. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Uh, These things need to happen. But the end is not yet. He needs them to endure. Because it's going to get bad for them as well. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all the nations for my namesake. The persecution will be so severe that many are going to fall away and betray each other and hate each other. False prophets are going to arise. We see this throughout the New Testament. They're going to lead others astray. Lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. You need to endure. Don't give up. Press on. Because the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. There's a couple of things that need to be said about this last verse here. A couple of things that need explaining. Obviously, many have interpreted this reference to the end as a reference to the end of the world. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. It could be. Uh, It could be that he's giving a sort of overview of all of history here, of the entire age. But it seems much more likely to me that given the context and given what follows is that Jesus is talking about the end of Jerusalem. He's talking about the end of Israel's national status in Jerusalem with its temple. Uh, when every stone is going to be thrown down and not one is going to be left upon another. And yet, what does he say? He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And maybe you're scratching your head and you're, you're, you're thinking, Pastor Joel, if this is a reference to the end of Jerusalem, how in the world can Jesus say that this gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And I would answer you, it was. By 70 AD, the gospel had spread out according to the pattern of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. By the time of 70 AD, by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, we have letters written to 
Gentile peoples throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. Uh, What began at Pentecost, right? When there were in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And Paul says in his letter to the Romans, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In their minds, the whole known world had heard the gospel. He tells the Christians in Colossae that the gospel is bearing fruit among you as it is in all the world. He says later in Colossians that by the time of the, the writing of that letter, they, the, gospel, the same gospel that they had heard had been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. Clearly, uh, by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, from the perspective of the apostles, the gospel had gone out. It had gone out in concentric circles from this one little insignificant city to the whole world. So don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Persevere. Proclaim the gospel. Jesus tells them, I want you to stay here and keep preaching because this is my mission, that the gospel is going to go out from this place. Those are the signs. But then there's a signal. There is a moment where Jesus says, now is the time to run. Uh, We read about it in verses 15 through 20. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the language of the abomination of desolation, as Matthew notes for us, is taken from the language of Daniel. It was well understood by the Jews as referring to an abomination which creates desolation, an abomination of desolation in that sense. And there are uh, historical examples of such abominations. Uh, The Jews would have in their minds uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian commander who, who hated the Jews and persecuted the Jews. And in his hatred, uh, as an example of an abomination of desolation, he brought a pig into the temple courts. Now, you, you know that the Jews, because of their laws regarding clean and unclean animals, despised uh, swine. But he brought a swine into the temple courts and he sacrificed it at the altar of the outer court and then he sprinkled the swine's blood all over the sacrifices. He put out the lamp that burned continuously in the temple. He burned their scrolls. And then, to add insult to injury, he made the high priest and the other Jews who were there to eat the flesh of the pig. It was an abomination that caused desolation. Jesus says there's going to be another abomination of desolation. This time, it's not going to be simply the killing of swine. It's going to be the killing of the priests. It's going to be the killing of the people. It's going to be their blood shed by one another and then ultimately shed by the Romans here in the very temple courts. That would be the abomination that makes desolation 
when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, it would come. And we don't have to guess about that because Luke tells us that's exactly what he's referring to. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that your desolation has come near. Why was it an abomination? Because the Jews believed that those Roman ensigns, those Roman flags bearing Caesar's image were idolatrous. Remember the coins with Caesar's image on them and how they felt those were idolatrous and couldn't be used in the temple and so had to be exchanged. This will be the signal. When the Roman armies are surrounding the city, when they begin to lay siege to it, run. Get out. Flee. These are the days of vengeance, as Luke calls them. Just as the Babylonian armies represented God's vengeance in the days of the exile, so now he would use the Roman armies as the instrument of his vengeance. And he calls the Christians to escape. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not even go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Luke puts it this way. He says, let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out of the country not enter the city. But you see, the impulse would be just the opposite, wouldn't it? If you see Roman armies coming and you're you're out in the country, you're in your fields, the impulse is going to be to run to the city. To hide behind the walls of the city. To think that there you will have security and safety. There you might at least be able to make a defense. And that's exactly what the Jewish people did. Those in the countryside surrounding Jerusalem came in swarms to the city. And those who were in the city did not go out. They hunkered down. And as the Roman armies created that unbreakable siege, the addition of all the people would only serve to increase the suffering and starvation. But Jesus says, if you're on your rooftop and you see the armies, don't even go back down into your house. Just get out. Get out. If you're in the field, don't come back. Oh, and for pregnant women and nursing mothers... Pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath. You see, if you're pregnant or nursing, it's going to slow you down. If if it comes during the Sabbath, the shops are not going to be open for you to buy provisions. The gates won't even be open. If it's in the winter, the creeks are going to be flooded. Jesus says pray. Pray that God will give you success. Pray that He will speed your journey, enable you to get out. When you see that signal, that's the time. You need to run. Because Jesus says in verses 21 through 28, there is going to be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. 
I hope it's clear that this great tribulation is not a reference to a seven-year period at the end of human history. This is a historical reference to the great suffering and the atrocities that occurred in Jerusalem during those days of vengeance, where warring factions would rise up fighting for control over the city. The Roman armies completely cut off the Jews from going out and anything from coming in. The Jews had prepared. They had created huge storehouses. But as tensions began to rise, factions among the Jews themselves began to war and kill and murder each other. And eventually, these Jewish factions would burn up their storehouses. They would burn up their corn and their grain that they had saved for just this occasion. Unmentionable crimes would be committed. I'll spare you a full account of the horrors, except to say that this was a horrific siege. The starvation would become so severe that many of the Jewish people would be reduced to eating their own excrement and eating their own children. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, he was a Jew. He would write words eerily similar to Jesus when he said, Neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries. Nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this generation from the beginning of the world. In the end, Josephus tells us that of a population of 1.2 million, over 1 million people would die in the siege and subsequent fighting. Over a million. Eventually, the city would fall. It would be burned to the ground. The temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another. And those who remained would be led captive. And the Romans would celebrate this. We still have standing. You know, they they built these two incredible triumphal arches. Maybe you've seen pictures of the Arch of Titus, which has engraved on it the Jews being led with the menorah and all the, the prizes of the temple as they celebrated the destruction of their enemies. You can only imagine that in the midst of that kind of tribulation, people would desperately want to find a deliverer. They would want to believe that the Christ would come, those who had rejected Jesus, but would begin looking for another Christ. People would say, look, here's the Christ. They would say, there he is. He's there in the wilderness. He's there in the inner rooms. Jesus says, don't believe it. Jesus says, I am not going to come and save you. You will not see me again. Even as he wept over Jerusalem, even as he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your house will be left to you desolate. You will not see me again. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to save you. When he does come, Jesus tells us what it will be like. 
He says it will be like lightning coming from the east and shining to the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That is a reference to the end of the world and to the final coming of Christ, but it's meant to be in contrast to this coming. He's not coming in secret. He's not coming to deliver. He has come to deliver, and you rejected the deliverer. You did not know the time of your visitation. Your house is left to you desolate. And then he finishes with the words, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There are many interpretations of that phrase, some more persuasive than others. I tend to think Jesus is just sort of graphically describing the scene from nature. We have this in Florida, right? We have lots of vultures. You're driving down the road, and you see a bunch of vultures in the middle of the road. You don't have to guess that there's a dead deer there. Why else would the vultures be gathered? That's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying. This is what is going to be with Jerusalem. There may be a historical reference to things that I won't mention. There may be a prophetic reference. In any case, Jesus is giving us this intentionally disturbing image. And yet even with all of that horror, Jesus says to his people, he says, pray. Pray. And for the sake of his elect, God will shorten these days. Not everyone will be able to get out. When God comes in vengeance on his enemies, that same God who comes in wrath and fury is the God who protects and preserves his elect, those whom he has chosen. And beloved, please don't stumble over the idea of God having an elect people. The Bible could not be more clear. This is a biblical word. God has elected, he has chosen a people for himself from before the foundation of the world. He has chosen them and set his love upon them in Christ. And and for their sakes, he providentially orders the way things fall out in history, which is an amazing thing to think about. Sometimes he does that by providing a way of escape from tribulation. Sometimes he does that by providing a way through tribulation. But he cares for his elect. I'm reminded as we were going through officer training recently, we were talking about God's providence. And the way our confession puts it, it says it like this. It says, As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a special manner it taketh care of his church, and it disposeth all things to the good thereof. Even this terrible judgment. And do you know what is the most special act of providence by which God protects and preserves his church? It's the sending of his son. It's the sending of Christ to be a true substitute sacrifice for the sins of his people. The cross was a day of vengeance, the horrors of which make the horrors of Jerusalem pale in comparison. It looked like the end of the world. There was unnatural darkness, earthquakes, the veil of the temple torn in two. 
These are signs that accompany God's judgment. The cross was as every bit as much a display of the vengeance of God as the desolation and destruction of Jerusalem. But in the case of the cross, it was not the earthly temple that was torn down, was it? It was the temple of Christ's flesh, his body. His flesh is the veil that is torn in two that gives his people access into God's presence so that all of his elect, as many as the Lord our God shall call, from the four corners of the earth, all who will run to Christ and find refuge under his wings, they will find it. What a wonderful message in the midst of judicial destruction. That there is a Savior, that there is a Deliverer, that there is one who protects God's people from the wrath that they deserve. And He is coming again. Uh, In many ways, the judgment on Jerusalem foreshadows that final day of judgment when Christ comes again, when He comes like a thief in the night. Will you be ready? Will you be found gathered up by Christ? Resting under the protection of his righteousness. Until he comes, how do we live? Well, I think these instructions of Jesus are very helpful for us. Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. And don't give up. Persevere. Continue to proclaim the gospel. Persevere in the grace of God and pray for his deliverance. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, this is a sobering passage because it reminds us of the severity of your judgment. That you are a God of righteousness and holiness. That you call the wicked to account for their deeds. And you have demonstrated that in history over and over and over again. But Lord, nowhere do we see the fullness of your judgment more soberingly manifest than as it comes at the cross of our Savior. Where all of our sins are laid upon his head, And he, as a perfect, innocent Lamb of God, goes and bears the wrath due to us. And yet, Lord Jesus, having endured all of that wrath, you have been raised up in glory. You have ascended to the right hand of your Father. Having made purification for sins, you sat down at the right hand from where you rule and reign. And you will come again in judgment to judge the quick and the dead. And Lord, we pray that we would be ready, that we would be ready to meet you by faith and repentance, by looking to you in hope, longing for your deliverance, uh, even eagerly anticipating your coming. But Lord, help us until that day not to be deceived, not to be afraid, and not to give up. And we say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And of course, then the wonderful thing that follows the sacrament of baptism is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we are actually...
uh, now have this picture of, of our being invited as the children of God to his family table, right? That uh, we are dining with Christ and Christ with us, uh, and that he gives to us his own body and blood that we might feed with him and be, be nourished upon him. Just as bread and wine nourish our physical bodies, so the, the bread and wine here representing the body and blood of Jesus Christ nourish our souls. They encourage, they encourage us. They remind us of the forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness of our Savior. Uh, and they also motivate us uh, to follow after him more and better. And so today, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized into his body, if, if his name has been put upon you and you love him and desire to serve him better, if you are walking in faith and repentance, then come and pull up your seat to this table, as it were, and receive from the Lord these, uh, these wonderful elements. But I would also warn you, because just like baptism, these elements are a picture of judgment, aren't they? They're, they're a picture of a man's body being ripped to pieces and his blood being poured out. And that is a picture of the full wrath of God that he underwent. And you see, if you receive that in him, then you do not fear that judgment. But if you are outside of Christ, then this image of God's wrath is upon you. And that should terrify you. And so if you're here and you do not belong to Christ, do not partake of these elements, lest you eat and drink judgment to yourself, the Bible says. But look to Christ. Call out to Him. Cry out for His deliverance. Uh, He calls through the Gospel. He would gather you up under His wings. And if you want to be gathered up by Christ then come and speak with me after the service. There's nothing more that I would love to talk to you about than what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we come to this meal then, let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use. Almighty God, as we come now to your table, we thank you for the right and privilege that belongs to us as the children of God, as those who bear your name. And Lord, we one of those great rights is access to this table together with the rest of your family. Here we have communion with you, but we also have communion with one another. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take these ordinary elements now and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, Jesus Christ and all of his benefits for our salvation would be really and truly ours. Lord, make us to walk in them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.